This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. So it's not that, you know, Shakespeare is the devil or anything like that. It's just that, you know, we continue and we have put him on a pedestal mm-hmm. in a way that really is a form of, 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 of holding white supremacy. Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. Inter- interchangeable. In- interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Today's essential question is, what does it mean to teach in a multicultural and multilingual classroom and in communities in 2020? And our guest today is Lorena Herman. Did I do it? Uh, Herman. Herman. Your name is so beautiful and I don't want to ruin it. Uh, Lorena is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic and raised in the U.S. She attended public schooling from first grade through high school. She earned her bachelor's degree in English communication from Emmanuel College and her master of arts in English from Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English. She is the chair of the National Council of English Teachers Committee Against Racism and Bias in the Teaching of English, and she's a co-founder of Hashtag Disrupt Texts. Currently, she teaches at Headwater School in Austin, Texas. And she is our guest for uh, part two of our interviewing folks from Disrupt Text, just an amazing organization. So we're so happy to have you. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to do this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Besides your bio, is there anything else you think that, um, which is amazing, is there anything else you think that listeners need to know just in order to understand the context or some of the framing of this conversation? Um, hmm, okay. Yeah, how to fill in any gaps. So... I was um, I was born in Dominican Republic and raised in Massachusetts in Lawrence, which is a small little city, but super super packed and full and busy, um, about half an hour north of Boston, and uh, that's important because in that community, I lived all my life around Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, mm-hmm. so I was really actually. Um, sheltered in some ways for a very long time from interacting with too many white people. (laughs) And my interactions with white folks were always um, very much with them being in positions of authority over me in some ways. So like they were teachers or they were uh, police officers or they were doctors. Um, And that really did not, was not something that I understood how much it had shaped me until I was an adult. Um, And that matters because that ends up um, being part of how I unpack what all of my schooling uh, Mm -hmm. had been like. And so that actually leads me to the work that I've been doing now for, I don't know, forever, I guess. It feels like forever. Um, And then um, I think also then my shift from Lawrence five years ago to Austin, Texas (laughs) was yet another cultural shock. Um, and so that has informed my more recent work. What, um, what brought you into teaching to begin with? You kind of hinted a little bit at it, but would you mind telling us a bit about that story? Sure. Well, that's a very long story, but the short (laughs) version, the short version is, um, I, I was at a high school, Lawrence high school, 
um, our, our city's public high. And while I was in school, we lost accreditation. Mm. And um, I didn't even know that was a thing, right? Until you lose it. And then it becomes yeah. a big thing that everybody talks about. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this matters? Well, why does it matter? And then mm. friends who attended other high schools, whether public or private, you know, neighboring cities, they would be like, oh, well, you lost accreditation. So like, what are you going to do for mm. college? And I'm like, well, I mean, the same thing I was going to do before, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really didn't understand the magnitude of that. And mm. I still, you know, I went, to, I graduated and I went to college. And um, anyway, the point is that the, my experience in that high school and in middle school, because I think that's usually what we remember most, mm-hmm. right? Um, in general, we remember that because it's more recent to our adulthood, I guess. Um that experience shaped, um, it just shaped me. It's totally been a core of who I've become. Um, and so when I graduated high school, I was like, I will never ever visit this place again. It was so traumatizing. It was so (laughs) just, um, it was just a really rough experience. Um, love my peers. Um, they were not uh, the issue. Although if you were to talk to adults at the time, you know, we were always, the issue. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And so yeah. anyway, the fun it's always the adults and never the kids. That's true. Um, anyway. And so long story short, I, I had been avoiding teaching, but like I'd been a teacher since I was in middle school. Cause my father, um, you know, owned a Taekwondo school and I would teach there. And in high school, I would tutor and they would ask me, like the basketball coach would be like, hey, will you tutor my boys after school? Um, And then in college, like I was like, "Okay, I'll work with young people, but like not I will not be a teacher. And so I started in youth work and I was always teaching. Um, My first job was like teen education advocate. So it's just like, you know, I was definitely meant to be in the classroom. And I think I just fought it for so long. And then. You know, finally, I ended up moving back to Lawrence and I met my husband. And at the time, as my boyfriend, he was like, why don't you just become a teacher? I was like, mm-hmm. because no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. And then whatever, like, that's exactly what ended up happening. And I became a teacher at that very high school where I'd been. And so mm-hmm. having some of my former teachers as colleagues. Yeah. Like, wow. That was, you know, a trip. I bet. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's how I <laughs> ended up teaching. I think, you know, one of the ways that I express that now is that I became a teacher in hindsight to be the teacher that I never had. Yeah. Um, and so that that's why it informs my work, you know. Um, what brought you to moving to Texas? Well, uh, Massachusetts is cold as hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think also it's tough for my husband and I. So he's also, um, you know, a community activist and an educator. So for both of us, being in Lawrence was really, really taxing um, mm. professionally and emotionally because we didn't just go to work every day, right? Like right. we went to our communities. Mm. He ended up being an assistant principal in his own like childhood neighborhood. Mm. And I'm teaching at the school where I was that, you know, like, so it was just so, so heavy for us. And yeah. you know, the district ended up being taken over by the state, the mm. first one in the state of Massachusetts. And that was just layers upon layers of, um, hmm, I don't even know what words to use other than 
you know, also traumatizing, but abusive and yeah. just mm-hmm. layered in racism and oppression. Um, and so we got to a point where we were like, okay, the two of us can't do it. We're partnered with and members of organizations that are working hard as hell, but like, you know, it's either going to be like our health or this work. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, we just, we decided to move and we weren't going to go anywhere local because that just, that's just not how we roll. Um, yeah. Local communities would just be like, I'm not helping my own people. Now I'm helping somebody else's people next door. And and so that was like, okay, well, if we're in Massachusetts, we're going to be in Lawrence. And if we can't be in Lawrence, then we can't be in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And it's cold. We're both Dominican and we just want to be near. Um, and so, yeah, my, my husband ended up getting a job here in Austin, Texas. I was pregnant at the time. And I was like, I'm just going to just gonna roll with this for a little bit and stay home for this first you know like throughout this pregnancy and that's how we ended up in Austin nice short (laughs) that's awesome yeah a a lot of things you're mentioning um I'm just kind of nodding along because I think about some of the similar conversations Nate and I have had um Mm -hmm. about the work we were doing in Washington prior to moving here um and just kind of the things you're describing in terms of um just distancing for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, um, you know, our big question we, we're framing this work around today is just this notion of being in a multicultural communities and multilingual communities and classrooms. Are you seeing a difference with that from moving from Massachusetts to Texas? Um, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so that's so big. <laughs> Okay, so I'll say a couple of things. So first, you know, our country is very, very, or this country, United States, is very um, racially and economically segregated. So it's actually hard to be in a multicultural, right, or like racially or ethnically diverse school mm-hmm. because you're actually either in a predominantly white school or predominantly black school or predominantly Latino school, Um and even in, in our Latinx communities, some of them are blended with some African-Americans. But, you know, typically even that, because of language issues, we're still very divided. And Asian-Americans are kind of like spread around, but typically in more, you know, white communities anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even even this idea, this notion that we're in multilingual or multi-ethnic communities or multicultural communities, that's a little bit of a facade, um, Mm -hmm. right? Because of our segregation. But, um, you know, we are headed to a place where that integration, probably more so by force than anything else, is going to be more of a reality. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, what does it mean to teach in 2020? I think that in and of itself is a question. Never mind, like, who's sitting in front of you, right? Like, yeah. what it means to teach in this country right now where, you know, like in Texas, for example, where just, like, miles down south of us in Austin, hours south from us, there are people living in horrific conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it is irresponsible, in my personal and professional opinion, to be teaching, for example, in the state of Texas and not addressing that in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's irresponsible for teachers to be in any one of our states and not address issues of indigeneity where they mm-hmm. are. So, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, you know, that's just not my lane. Like, I just teach math or I just teach literature. And it's like, well, actually, yeah. So how does your content area speak to the problems of the world? Because then you're just teaching right. a good thing. 
So like, we can't have it both ways as teachers. We can't say, I teach some things that are useful in the real world, but then you're not talking about the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Yeah. Um, you know, it causes this, it creates this myth both for teachers and students to operate in. And, and Tanasi Coates calls it, you know, the, the dreamers, this, this mm-hmm. idea that we're all in this American dream and there's this nostalgia and this um, pretend that we're supposed to be in at all times, mm-hmm. right? I, this isn't like directly linked to that, but I think it is. I mean, I see it that way. I, I think that for teachers who are in classrooms who are like, yeah, I have students of color in my room and some white students and we're in whatever state, Florida, um, but we're just not going to think about or talk about issues of gun control, considering mm-hmm. like how you are in the state where Parkland happened and other right. shootings, right? But like Parkland in particular and what it means for young people, like that to me is disconnected and irresponsible. So mm-hmm. yeah. That's my sh- very short, <laughs> long way of answering that. <laughs> no, that's really good. One of the things we've talked about um, on our show is just this notion that when people, especially white teachers, say, you know, diverse classrooms, they actually just mm-hmm. mean there's just a few students of color. Mm-hmm. But I'm really glad um, you just realigned us back with the fact that it really we are segregated communities, yeah. thus segregated schools. And so it's really not as, quote unquote, diverse or multicultural, right. multilingual as we would um, aspire to or pretend it is. Mm-hmm. Which is why, um, you know, that's why the the work of Disrupt Text, I think, has has just kind of found its it's, it's a timing thing, right? Like, yeah, it's absolutely. not like we're bringing up a conversation that's never been had or work that no one has done. I think it's it's a timing thing. I think that you know, as a country, we're at a point where a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, what side am I on mm-hmm. right now of this very yeah. polarized that we're in. And so how do I, you know, find maybe I'm in a class that's predominantly white or a class that's predominantly black. Like, how do I bring in diversity in here? How do we make sure that all people are present? Because I think one of the things that has led us to where we are right now is the fact that we haven't had these conversations and Mm -hmm. the fact that like our lives haven't just been segregated ethnically, but also Mm -hmm. in every other possible way, right? right? Of thought, uh, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of approach, diversity of life, of culture, of language, of food, of just philosophy, mm-hmm. of religion, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we're so segregated that you get to a point where someone could say, you know, like, I, I don't want to even say his name. Um, I'm not even talking about mm-hmm. this other <laughs> this other politician <laughs> who has gone on record multiple times saying things like, no, nothing, you know, what good came out of Africa? Like all civilization happened outside of that and came from Europe. And and like, I can't even under, like, obviously that is completely ignorant and incorrect and, and steeped in white supremacy, but I could actually understand how he might reach that conclusion if he huh. would just have gone through our American educational system. Well, of course you'd reach that conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how we get to that point when we have teachers who have never questioned it and who are like, I'm staying in my lane. That's how we get mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So it's like a self-reinforcing kind of um, process of white supremacy where, folks are just, it's kind of that tunnel vision, right? That they don't see right. um, alternate perspectives uh, from their own. And then it just, they their lane is all they can actually see. Right. Right. It's not even right. like, it's not even like a choice to stay in your lane, right? Because it's, it's like. it's really comfortable, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's it. It's yeah. super comfortable to say, I just teach algebra. Mm-hmm. I just teach grammar, right? Like that's a really comfortable position where mm-hmm. I, as the educator, don't have to think about my identity or my positionality. Mm-hmm. 
I don't have to welcome students into thinking about that either. And we can all just sit here and quote unquote escape and pretend um, from the horrors that are happening every day. But like, mm-hmm. we, sh- we, didn't, we don't have to have these horrors in the first place if we were creating and supporting young people, not creating, but supporting young people to develop into mm-hmm. adults that would never do that in the first place, right? Like, yeah. so we, you know, the more we don't, it's like cancer. <laughs> like just yeah. because yeah. I, you know, the doctor tells me now, that doesn't mean the doctor is giving me cancer. Um, the mm-hmm. doctor's not at fault here. Like, let's actually address it. Let's not sit around just hoping that it goes away. And if we don't talk mm. about it, then we don't have cancer. Like that's just literally insane. Um, and it's a life and death situation, right? Mm-hmm. So when I think about, recently I did a presentation on the direct relationship between literacy and incarceration. Mm. And I mean, the the data and the research is overwhelming um, in, in that it just demonstrates a direct correlation between illiteracy and incarceration so the more illiterate you are and illiteracy is defined in a number of ways right like how you deal with um yeah regular reading right like long text but also Mm -hmm. filling out documents like do you know some of this jargon to fill it out in order to let's say get a job application or to Mm -hmm. apply for health care or whatever right so like there's a direct correlation between how much someone can read or write and understand and comprehend and their chances of ending up in prison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is literally life and death. <laughs> like this, yeah, is, yeah. This, is not, this is not about, oh, I want you to have a character that you like in the story. Yeah. It's like, if I am able to, as a teacher, curate a reading and learning experience for you, your chances for a better quality of life mm-hmm, increase right. dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean by responsibility. Like, I take that word really, seriously um I have chosen to be in this profession and therefore I am responsible for doing a Mm -hmm. good job this is Mm -hmm. not the kind of job where I'm making fancy office chairs right but like if I make a mistake like cool like ugly leather great right (laughs) or I'm not you know someone builds I don't know houses like even that is important but like yeah oh, there's, you know, bad hardwood floors. Like, we'll all survive, right? Right. It's like, no, I actually did not do a good job of helping you learn how to read. Therefore, I have Mm -hmm. increased your chances of ending up in jail, Mm -hmm. right? Or ending up in a position where you're interacting with police. And if you're a person of color, like, you're headed for a very high chance of death. Mm -hmm. Because what I didn't also do then was work with those white people Right. So that when they see you, they don't see fear and think, let me shoot, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. we're really talking about life and death. And I don't mean, and I, I, I always want to clarify, like, I'm not trying to say that English teachers hold the future of the world. No. Uh, but we do. It's fine. I mean, I, I totally agree with that as an English teacher. I think it's very valid. I think no, it's for all I'm, English teachers. You know, this is, an, you know, white supremacy operates as in an institutional level. So it's yeah. not, you know, just English teachers. I, I always want to make sure that I say that. Um, but I'm an English teacher. And so my job is to think about my field and what I do. Yeah. 
right? And Annie, and you can be that, part of this. She, she's social studies. We can counter. It's fine. Go, yeah, I'm, I'm, hey, we all teach literacy. So I, I think a lot about in, in my classroom, I think a lot about my kids with um, like my neurodiverse kids. Like we're reading a Raisin in the Sun in drama class right now. And I have one student who has dyslexia and she really wanted to read for a part. And she's like, I'm going to do it. And I just like she said, I have dyslexia. Everybody be patient with me. And if she hadn't, she's a black young woman. If she hadn't had uh, teachers, if she hadn't had adults in her life, her parents at home and her peers saying, yeah, try it, do it, right? That she pushed and like took that risk, right? She has supportive people in her life who are saying to her like, yes, you can succeed. Um, and so I think about too, about like the, the kind of intersection of, you know, the criminal justice system and like special education um, and mm-hmm. the intersections of special education and multilingualism, right? You're talking about students who, you know, may need additional services for special ed and, you know, kind of that that's a that's a whole other kind of layer right on there um but i you know and and i teach social studies and drama and so i see that not just in you know teaching literacy in my classroom but also um yeah just interacting with students and like you know treating them with humanity when you you think it's it's so hard for kids to take a risk in front of their peers it's so hard for them because they are worried about looking looking and feeling stupid that they don't that they have the support they need to to find success, right, and what that looks like in your classroom, whether it's for me, like in drama, taking a risk, getting up in front of everyone, or if it's in social studies and read-alouds or participating in activities that otherwise would be really scary. So, yeah, I mean, the cultivating classrooms that make that risk-taking safe, I guess, in a way, um, as safe as a risk can be, I guess. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Did you, in your presentation, um, I'm assuming you had a predominantly white crew in front of you that were listening, or, <laughs> or what were people's responses? How do you think, um, how do you think people are taking what you're sharing with them? So that was, um, so that was at my current school, and my current school is actually a, a small, independent, private, white, uh, predominantly white, um, not completely, but predominantly um, school in Austin. And so it was for our like civil rights day where teachers uh, could, mm. you know, do different presentations. And so our, our big idea that we were exploring were issues of, of criminal injustice. And so, you know, I was like, okay, how does my content area speak to this again, to model for everyone, <laughs> including my yeah. colleagues, um, you know, how to do that. So that's, that's why I did that. And, um, you know, I'm really fortunate to be at this school that is very, open and willing and ready to engage. So, you know, they're primed to be, you know, open and receiving. Um, so yeah, everybody was really receptive and, and it was good. It was fine. Um, I'm finding that my audience and even the audience for Disrupt Text and the audience for the multicultural classroom is, is often self-selected, right? Because they're looking right. for this content and this conversation and these materials. So, you know, I think our, our, I have found the most pushback and resistance through the disrupt text work um, because we have the conversation online. We have it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so anybody can come in. And, and so even though we have our big audience of people who are ready and willing and wanting to, there's the others who are like, ah, oh, look at this stupid conversation, right? Yeah. This racist conversation against white people. Um, <laughs> when so, we, sometimes when we post podcast episodes, we get the most bizarre comments on our like public 
yeah. Facebook there and public go. Twitter, and it's like, God, like that just brings out the some people that you're like, what, where, what are you talking about? Yeah, right. it's insane. Right. I bet that's yeah. probably that's probably like, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just a big. It's kind of a, it's a risk you take, right? With having it out there, but it makes it so much so available, right? So it's like that's the one of the best platforms to make it available to people. Correct. Correct. That's the double-edged sword of this, right? Is that it's available and therefore it spreads like wildfire and then simultaneously it spreads like wildfire. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's funny because the biggest, you know, a lot of people just, um, I was just talking about this with students this week, this, this idea of cognitive dissonance, right? It's like we're, we're highlighting as a group of four women of color that our voices have been historically intentionally neglected and erased Mm -hmm. and so the fact that you are in this moment you mythical resistor um yeah uh you know that you are erasing and neglecting our voice as we're talking about this um is just i mean for me it's mind-boggling right it's like no shut up we have not erased your voice like okay i guess (laughs) (laughs) you know um and then immediately the, the white fragility settles in and in, in the form mm. of, but not my book, not to kill a mockingbird, not the <laughs> great Gatsby, yeah. right? Um, those are really the ones that we've gotten the most like mm. hurt feelings about. Um, I was just going to ask you, because Trisha and Julia brought those two up as well. So I was curious yeah. if that was your take in terms of pushback. Yeah, Gatsby and Mockingbird. Um, the Crucible met some pushback. Hmm. Um, Lord of the Flies, I think, I thought Lord of the Flies was going to be, you know, a big, like, oh, no. But, you know, it wasn't. People really just have lost their minds over Gatsby and Mockingbird. Um, maybe people are relieved Lord of the Flies is, like, getting maybe yeah, out. I, like, I finally. Yeah. I also feel like Lord, Lord of the Flies is in kind of that tradition of, like, um, of, like, I don't know, gladiator style, like combat where, you know, everyone dies. And it's that our, our especially YA, YA is really saturated with that in the last like 10 years of like battle to battle to the death. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, uh, Annie, maybe people Annie, are weary. That is Shakespeare. Why are people married to this man? Yeah. If everybody dies a bloody You're and right. bloody death at the end. You're right. <laughs> I have You're, really, yeah. it's a good point. About Shakespeare and, and, okay. yeah. Scared by the rest of my disrupt text crew. Um, I am the Lone Ranger. In so yeah, it. dig into that. Well, yeah, we actually asked them about it, and they were both like, "Well, you know." Yeah, and so yeah. I'm curious. Right. I also noticed your name is like on a lot of the posts um, on disrupt text in terms of like a, co- a collective, like representing the collective voice, but then also like your names on the documents. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and go on about Shakespeare? We'd love to hear it. <laughs> so. Here's here's my thing. Like, oh my god. Unless it's too upsetting, then <laughs> if you have to do this too much in your real life, see, that's fine. Like, people can't see, but I'm like rubbing my scalp. Like, she definitely is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like taking deep breaths. Here's my thing about Shakespeare. I don't I don't hate anyone. I don't hate anything, right? I just hate like racism. But or all the isms, right? Fine. Here's my thing about Shakespeare. I, I find that as people push harder for him, huh. it just makes me ha- feel like I have to push harder against, right? Like if yeah. I didn't feel as much resistance, then I think maybe this wouldn't really be such an issue. 
But, you know, Trisha, in one of our conversations as a group, like she had talked about how for her, this continued holding on to uh, or this continued like fight for Mockingbird and Gatsby and Shakespeare and like these canonical texts is really symbolic of like the Confederacy even, right? And, like, oh, are yeah. Are Confederate statues. And I was like, that's freaking genius. And I think that's why I want to knock them things down, right? Like that is why I'm like, burn the statue down burn Shakespeare down and it's not you know I think that I again I wouldn't like I've taught Shakespeare and is it fun teaching some of these sure because you act them out and you know you use modern language and like I have moments of like sheer tears in my eyes laughter with students you know when one of them we were um I can't remember which one Caesar Julius Caesar and and oh my god these kids their ingenuity is too much this was back home in lawrence and again these are predominantly latinx students but this particular group were like recent immigrants and we were reenacting a scene in caesar i can't remember what scene it was but one of them was like i'm gonna be the maid and so this this boy is walking in as the maid offering like tostones right which is like fried <laughs> yeah. and it was so perfect but but so incorrect and we just all died laughing, you know? Anyway, so it's not that, you know, Shakespeare is the devil or anything like that. It's just that, you know, we continue and we have put him on a pedestal mm -hmm. in a way that really is a form of, 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 of holding white supremacy. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to a very elitist, prestigious um, graduate program that y'all mentioned at the beginning and you know, there, there are courses dedicated to him, dedicated yeah. to him. And there are no other courses, at least at the time, dedicated to one author. And so what is it about this dude and about his stories that we have somehow decided that they are the pinnacle of literature, of writing, of craft, of everything, mm -hmm. where no other playwright can have, have that space. And so if no other playwright if no other person of color can have that space and it's only this white male voice, then immediately we know it's racialized and we know it's gendered. And so it is exclusive, right? It's an exclusionary practice. You're telling me that, you know, Raisin in the Sun is not a model of craft, mm -hmm. right? And we can go down the line with other playwrights, but mm -hmm. instead, no, we focus on him and we want to teach Othello and not talk about really go in depth into issues of race. We wanna teach, uh, let's say, um, what's the one in the forest where everybody's drunk? Uh, uh, Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream. Night's Dream. <laughs> so we wanna <laughs> talk about that one, but not talk about rape when that yeah. happens in right. the right. Okay, not talk mm -hmm. about uh, 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 date rape and date drugs and all them things, but teach it to sixth graders and just say, hey, how much fun this is. No, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to do that, yeah. right? And so mm -hmm. if I'm going to teach it responsibly, then don't teach it at all. Mm -hmm. And if I say don't teach it at all, here we go, right? There mm -hmm. arises the sleeping giant of white supremacy in the form of predominantly white male teachers who are like, mm -hmm. the classics, and they want to fight for it, right? And this resistance really, which is what I was saying earlier, is a form of upholding this white supremacy. Right. Can mm -hmm. students relate to it? Possibly. But why can't they relate to Jason Reynolds' ghost? Mm. Right? Like, why can't, why, that's not universal? Like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, who determines this? And mm -hmm. and what this, this um, you know, Julia talks about this, this um, 
cultural knowledge, right? Because that's one of the yeah. arguments. Oh, well, they're going to go through life not knowing all the jokes. Like, well, guess what? If you were to come to this, my family's barbecue, you wouldn't know all the jokes. And guess what? You'd be okay. And like, mm-hmm. we might throw you in. Like, that's going to be fine. Right? Like, I haven't read all of the Shakespeare plays. And I think I'm fine. Like, I think actually I'm yeah. quite right. Right? And so, but that is the cultural knowledge that is right. that. That is the knowledge that folks get to say, this is the one that matters. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a perfect spot to take a, a quick break. And we'll pick up right after. Hi, I'm Melanie Denise Cunningham. And I'm Audrey Cunningham. And we're the host of the Channel 253 podcast, What Say You? This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation. We're here to remind you that the 2020 census is getting underway and that you, yes, you, should participate. That's right. I know people can get nervous when someone from the government shows up with the clipboard, but here's the truth. Participating in the census will help us get our fair share of representatives to Congress. It will help us get more federal funds to our community, improve our school districts, and many other things. And you don't have to be a voter. You don't have to be a citizen, even. In terms of the census, you count. Ten questions, ten minutes. Census day is April 1st. Fill out that form. Thank you to PeaceWorks United and the Greater Tacoma Community Foundation for your sponsorship of Channel 253 and getting the word out about the 2020 census. So, listen, you should subscribe to Channel 253 for all of your favorite podcasts. It only costs $4 a month or $40 a year, and it's totally worth it because you're supporting content that you enjoy. So please go to channel253.com slash membership and join today. Awesome. Nice work, Annie. Um, Lorena, I want to ask, if you are pitching Shakespeare out the window, who do we bring in in his place? What's your go-to play that you think is mm, so good, offers all of the things that we want our students to engage with, think about, et cetera? Yeah, so so here's the com- the, the complex answer to that. I am fully <laughs> aware. Well, no, it is complicated because I'm fully aware that there are schools and there are districts where teachers do not have autonomy. They don't get to choose, right? So for those teachers, right, who are who are not allowed to replace text, um, then I would encourage them to teach them critically, to select Shakespeare plays that they know are fertile for really important and necessary dialogue, right? Um, and for those teachers, I would say find ways to use supplements that would help to complicate the conversation and bring Shakespeare down from his mm. pedestal to the real man that he was, right? So I would say that. Um, have I personally shut Shakespeare? I have, um, just because, and, and, um, yeah, just because I don't think, I think that it's better to have a conversation about what's right by looking at a text that's what's right, instead of looking hmm. at one that's wrong to then say, this is what's right. Yep. <laughs> like that's yeah. Making my job harder. Um, but for those that have the autonomy, that have the ability to select text and can replace Shakespeare, I would encourage you to do so. Um, off the top of my head, I do not have them mainly because I am a mother of two young children and my, uh, memory skills are, have depleted. Um, but if you were to visit our website, the disrupttext.org website, and you look up our chat, there are so many lists that we've put, that I posted, that other people posted. Mm -hmm. Um, there are so many good plays, um, by all types of authors, even, I mean, even like white women too, right? Like, 
you know, we are, we definitely have a focus on um, voices and authors of color. And I think that um, with, in terms of Shakespeare and plays, you know, like we can also visit plays by white women too, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so yeah, there's tons. Obviously there's Raisin in the Sun, um, which is the only one that comes to mind because you mentioned it right right now but we're also other, we're also like, gonna read we're also gonna read book. fences and we have a we have august wilson monologue competition yes, in seattle and that's wilson, all over the country right. august, like basically all august wilson is yeah, a good choice yeah, <laughs> wilson. there's so many um there's there's short eyes which is a really interesting play um i want to look it up but i'm not gonna do that right now um that's okay we can we can link to it yeah, in, the, in the show notes that one um i think it's short eyes i'm pretty sure it's short eyes He's actually writing about the play is set in a jail. And so it's mm-hmm. in prison. And it's a really interesting voice, right? Like we really don't have incarcerated voices in yeah. our class. We really don't bring those voices in. And so, you know, and those problems and those points of view and those experiences. So we could certainly replace Shakespeare and look at craft and mm-hmm. look at voice and look style and think universality because humans all humans are universal and all of our experiences are universal even with their unique elements so you know if i can make a connection with desdemona hundreds of thousands of years ago right um then we can make connections to some of the characters in august wilson august wilson's plays right Mm -hmm. we can find ways to make connections Mm -hmm. yeah i think also um you know looking at you know, thinking more about modern kind of contemporary playwrights, um, just not relying so much on, you know, that kind of Renaissance era um, or later Victorian era, um, you know, playwrights, because I, you know, there's a, with Shakespeare in particular, that um, is an entire like language barrier for, students and I I know that it's important for them to understand and you know a certain kind of uh, I guess like language I guess word origins um, to kind of navigate English and that it can be really actually can be a really helpful tool of looking at um, writing for like Shakespeare's writing um, to kind of look at where do words come from like how do they evolve over time I think that's one good use for that from language from that time period but like it doesn't have to be Shakespeare right so um, but I, I find that that's a huge barrier for kids um looking at writing from that time period that it's not it's not um accessible and so helping kind of understand like if there are universal themes like can we see those in what are considered the classics and then where else can you find them right because i mean think about someone like the character of walter in a raisin in the sun he is like in the beginning of the story he's so (laughs) he's so self-involved and he's and for folks who aren't familiar with this story you have to read it like it's incredible and it's free online so like what's your excuse um but um the fact that like he is this kind of have this sort of rage about not being able to access what he considers to be and what is considered by society to be like success, right? That that's a universal experience. You can read that character and he is so real because that is that feeling of never being able to get ahead, right? I think it's like attaching to those universal kind of themes, finding them in contemporary writing and kind of in celebrating and elevating, especially playwrights of color, because that is, the theater, if you think teaching's white, y'all, the theater community, like, sure, especially sure. in playwriting, like, it's right. it's a very, it's a very white institution, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And there are folks who are, sh- are shaking that up, but it's, it's, yeah, it's very, it's very centered on white, the white experience. Yeah. And, you know, 
I, I just want to speak to that whole um, idea of language and where the words come from and how that is, um, you know, it's an important, you know, word study is important. But again, I would, I would caution folks to think about um, which, so like, for example, we think about, um, and when, and this we is like English teachers, right? We think about mm-hmm. Shakespeare and, you know, Shakespearean or Elizabethan English as like, well, it'll, it'll inform us on uh, the origins of, of words and how, you know, word parts and word study and game vocab and whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. But like, what about, like, do you also take time to study, for example, the, the grammatical structure, the origins, the evolution of Black English? Do right. people do that? Right? Because that's a, that's a language yeah, that has right. a grammatical Absolutely. structure. Right. So do we do that? And so or do people spend time thinking about the work, the translanguaging, the translating, the multilingualism mm-hmm. that, you know, immigrant students are practicing right. like live, like right now? Yeah. You know, and so even then, like, is it OK to use Shakespeare for that and to use plays from that time period? Cool. I'm down for a cool word study. Um Therefore, I'm down for these other word studies as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And how do we see, yeah. you know, the ways that particularly African-American um, people, like that community mm-hmm. has pushed language in very creative, yeah. transcending and amazing ways that have leaked in, like literally globally, right? Like the yeah. fact that yeah. hip hop is a thing in Korea, <laughs> right? Right. Or, in any of these other countries, like that in and of itself is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It is a, a, you know, it, it, it is flabbergasting. And so, but, but I don't see necessarily anybody. Well, yeah, I suppose we could, we could make the argument that Shakespeare plays have evolved and have, you know, led into other new plays. I don't know that it's the same. I don't know that I would equate it, but like, again, if, if that's what we're going to study with Shakespeare and that's the claim that we're making, it is so important for our students to see it in other places. Yeah, and right. Absolutely. Moving him and all of these canonical texts off of their pedestal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little, oh, can you talk a little bit about um, your work with the multicultural classroom, how that started, um, yeah. how you see Disrupt Text connecting with that work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the multicultural classroom is simply the organization that my husband and I started um, we started it several years ago when we first came to Austin um, is when we kind of more formalized it. We had been doing this work before then. And this work, uh, in quotation marks, I guess, well, it's not, it's real work. <laughs> this work <laughs> is, um, this this work is about working with teachers, working with admin, working with whole schools, and even like nonprofits, outside organizations, churches, community spaces, um, and it's not simply anti-racist work, but it's community building work. Um, it's also, you know, we talk about culturally sustaining pedagogy. So, you know, pedagogy is a thing that sure, it's the art of teaching and it happens in a classroom, but really it's an approach, it's a stance. And so how can a church be culturally sustaining? How can mm-hmm. the, the school program be culturally sustaining? How can this principle lead in a way that is culturally sustaining? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, yes, how can teachers operate from a position where they want to sustain, not just relate to or be relevant to cultures, but sustain actual cultures that Mm -hmm. our white supremacist school system has sought to vilify and neglect and erase. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the multicultural classroom is our effort to formalize that work in order to make it more accessible and therefore equitable, right? Like this is what we do and this is how we help people. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it's we've we've been we've been doing it. So one way to think about it and differentiate it from disrupt text is that you know disrupt text is very narrow in what we do. We're our specialty, if you will, is working with English teachers, right, literacy mm-hmm. teachers, um, to think about curriculum and text selection and approach to teaching literature. And the multicultural classroom is um, a little it's it's for everybody, mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. just about text; it's about approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love um, how you just described culturally sustaining pedagogies because I um, I'm doing, have been doing some work around culturally responsive teaching here um, at my school in Abu Dhabi, and we're currently um, doing like a PLT group around um, Zoretta Hammond's book. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're right, like the extension of it, right? So it's beyond just responsiveness. Um, mm-hmm. In the old days, we used to say competencies, which I guess some people still say, but yeah, yeah. we'll leave that out the window. Um, but I just love that idea of sustaining. What does that mean? No matter what walk of life you're in, it, you don't have to be a teacher or a class in the classroom um, for it to be relevant to you. So I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not my idea. Um, I've, I've learned that from my mentor, Dr. Django Paris, and he partnered with Dr. Sami Alim and, and they put together the, the textbook for it, Culturally Sustaining Pedagogy. So you know, that book is, it, it has really, um, I mean, it's impacted me, but I think that it's definitely worth a read for teachers. It's really engaging. It's written in a way that is accessible. It's it's not like one long textbook. It's actually a series of chapters with very mm-hmm. practical examples of what this means and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's a quick plug for them. <laughs> So then do you see your new work, or I think it's new, um, at NCTE, the Committee for Anti-Racism and, yeah. or Against Racism and Bias? That's a new yeah. committee, isn't it? Uh, no, that committee is show. there. Um, that committee is, has existed for, oof, I don't know. I, You know, actually, that's a good question for me to research. Um, maybe the 70s. All right. Um, and I think... I think the reason why it hasn't been as popular as it is now, I don't know, I'm speaking, I'm speaking now out of ignorance, really, but <laughs> I have we'll just caveat it with it's your opinion, not representative, yes. <laughs> representative of the organization. No, and it is just my opinion. And I don't and I don't mean to demean anyone's work. I think that there's a difference between um, when sometimes sometimes there's a difference when academics, meaning like college people, um, you know, have been leaders of this committee. It's been very much about writing position statements, which are great. Um, producing resolutions, which are also really useful. Um, and doing work within NCTE, within the organization. Um, and all of that has been completely necessary because it's made the way for this to happen. Um, but I think what what this is that I'm naming is the fact that you now have a person who is, you know, a K through 12 teacher reaching right. out to K through 12 teachers and making that work that they built for us tangible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my first, so when I first joined the committee, I was recruited by the former chair. Um, and she was like, you know, I see your work on, on social media and I see your work within NCTE. So like, let's bring you in. And, and I was like, okay, but Honestly, like I don't need I don't need a resume builder. So like if we're gonna really do work, then I'm down. But if not, mm-hmm. like I was like I don't really I don't got time for this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I walked into the meeting. <laughs> I was very I was very hesitant because you know I was like I don't I don't need to do this. I don't mm-hmm. need to sit on this for some type of title. Like I I've got so much other 
real work that I'm doing. And so I walked in and I was like, you know what? I got it. I'm going to bring all of my big ideas because I always have really big ideas that require a lot of work. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to bring all my big ideas. And if there's an ounce of resistance, I'm off. I'm done. Goodbye. Um, and so I was like, this is what I want to do. And I like put the whole thing out. And she was like, fantastic. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, ah. that's awesome. Um, and she did, you know, she assembled a whole crew of people to work with me from this committee. And we put out, we turned a lot of those position statements and resolutions into the infamous poster boards that are, you know, that are online yeah. bookmarks. And so now teachers can actually hang that up and say, this informs my teaching, but it's also a message to students. Like, this is what I believe. And that is why this the space is safe that could be its own podcast this whole idea of safe space but yeah I feel like that is why this is the information that you know describes how I'm stepping into this room and that's mm. why we can call this this space safe um this then is also this poster or this bookmark is a message to my colleagues right of like this is where I believe education needs to go this is how I think we're going to be responsible and effective and mm. anti-racist um, and this is how we're going to make our country better. It's not by having three cute books on my shelf or this <laughs> right? Or like, I've had people say like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm fine. I don't need this information. I, and I quote, teach diversity and they keep walking. And I'm like, that in and of itself tells me everything I need to know. You don't know, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, you don't know. I nothing. teach diversity. Uh, I teach Ooh. diversity. Like, what does that even, like, what do you think that means? You know, um, so I feel like that's a good bl- title of a, bo- a blog post that just goes in. That might need to get. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, what is? Um, can you sneak peek like one of the things you're doing with that, or is that part of what the posters and the bookmarks is kind of one of your little plans that you brought or one of your plans you brought in? Yeah. Yeah. So, so those b- bookmarks and. Um, the bookmark and the posters are out. They've been out cool. since for several years now through NCTE and they're for free. They're downloadable on the NCTE website when you find our committee page, which is like gymnastics. Um, <laughs> so I'll try to know. find it and link to it for, for listeners. Well, no, you know what? If you go on Google and in the search bar, you type NCTE Committee Against Racism and Bias, I think that will pull it up directly. Okay. And on there, you can find all of the downloadables. Um, Since then, and once I became chair, we've produced several things. We created several blog posts um, with a lot of resources and information. And we just published um, a blog post, maybe it was in November, right before NCTE, with a video kind of bringing some of those posters actually to life through approach. Um, and then this year we're working, it's kind of a secret, but fine. We're working <laughs> on um, a tool with strategies for teachers, um, for English teachers from, from K all the way through 12. Awesome. Mm-hmm. When will that be out so that we can put that into our, um, well, on Google, get that alert. Loud, then you'll <laughs> hold us accountable. But uh, <laughs> the goal right now is um, for it to come out for NCTE. I think that's the goal. Okay, perfect. Sweet. And Thank if you. not, then maybe earlier, but oh boy. I can ver- I can verify that 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 what you said about Google is true. I the first result okay, that comes up go. when you type oh, it in. So perfect. everybody go everybody go check Thanks, it out. Annie. Yeah. 
quick link it in the show notes. Um, as we wrap up, is there anything um, that we've touched on that you have another idea or you you realize you want to throw out to us um, something we haven't talked about? You want to say make sure we say. Um, let me think. Um, well, yeah, a couple things, I guess. I, I guess one thing is um, that this doing this work and. Here I'll focus, but particularly on like anti-racist and anti-bias mm-hmm. work, whether you're doing it, you know, in a, in a disrupt text fashion or simply just, you know, your whole curriculum. Um, it's not impossible. It's really doable. And it's not separate from building mm. skills. I think that uh, from building skills, there's, yeah. there's, there's these other movements growing right now about, you know, the science of this or the science of that. Mm. um or folks who just don't understand that um you know to to teach about equity to teach in an anti-racist way is somehow not about building skills or helping young people to develop literacy right and actually they're not mutually exclusive they go hand in hand Mm -hmm. Um, one is required for the other in order for you Mm -hmm. to teach effectively and for kids to gain skills that you need to offer an anti-racist and an anti hmm. anti-racist approach that is holistic and also restorative right like that's yeah. the way we're really going to make it um and so i'll plug my workbook that i published recently um not because i'm interested in sales although i am but um <laughs> <That's okay>. but <laughs> no but this is why and this is why i wrote it i wrote it because i think that you know other than Zaretta hammond's book I don't know of too many other uh, works out there that can help people think about the actual strategies. Like, how do I actually teach? Right? Like, how do I craft my instruction mm-hmm. in a way that is anti-racist? And so that's what right. I do with that workbook. So that that workbook is um, a reading instruction workbook. And so I talk all the way from like, how do you design a lesson to like actually like asking questions like how do we even do partner work mm. how do we even do debrief or reflections or writing yep. reading logs like i address all of those things because i think that's been the gap that i've been observing after x many mm. years of doing this work is it feels sometimes like it's um vague or abstract mm. and i know from my work with other with my colleagues that like it isn't and we have ways but i think it's sometimes hard to be super uh, meta in that way yeah. and document our own steps. And so that's really what I tried to do with that book, uh, with that workbook is create a tool for teachers to sit and reflect. You can work with other people and do it together, but really like step back and think, okay, why am I doing this thing? Where does that come from? Does it actually uphold, you know, traits of white supremacy culture? Like, is mm. that what I'm doing here? Or am I really mm. doing something that is restorative and new and different and equitable for all yeah. the kids? class even if you're working with predominantly white students like this applies to anyone in any context awesome is it a pdf format per chance yes it's a, it is so right now it's digital we are working on making it print so there's a little uh, another little secret that i've been holding um we're working <laughs> on making it uh, available via print but right now it is it's it's um an e-workbook Perfect, because I'm supposed to do a workshop for some teachers in a couple weeks on this exact yeah. thing. So I'm like, I'm going to go check that out and use some of those things. Nice. Um, we have um, you can get that on the Multicultural Classroom website. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, two quick segments real fast. Um, we have a segment called Champagne and Real Pain. 
Champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. And we would like to raise a, um, a fake glass of champagne um, to somebody who's either doing awesome work or if you want to raise a glass to your favorite author, someone right now you love. Ooh, yeah. Um, oh, I know you sent me this, but I... <laughs> so I'm going to raise a glass to... Um, Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi, um, he's just doing so much out in these streets and um, I, I just, I, I need him to keep doing it, but I also, you know, I want him to be healthy and, and, and do what he's got to do to, to restore himself and, and self-care or whatever. But yeah, my glass goes out to him right now. Awesome. Any, any glass raising? Um, just, uh, you caught me. No. Okay. Um, sorry. Let me think about it. Um, I think I'll, just, I'll raise a glass. Oh, I'll raise a glass while you're thinking. I about have it real quick. one. It's someone on Twitter. Here you go. And then I'll go. Um, I just finished reading. Let me see if I can get the name right. The love and lies of Ruxana Ali by Sabina Khan. And it is awesome. Um, Bangladeshi American girl sent Seattle. Um, she's gay. She's trying to come out to her parents. It's complicated by religion and race and all these other dynamics. And it is such a great um, YA read. So I, I really enjoyed her writing. And do you think of yours? I'm trying to find it. It's on, oh, it's on Twitter. Boo, it's all right. No, no, we'll just I, drink there, the champagne I have, over I here. Just have a few, I just have a few <laughs> folks that I've been following recently because I have two Twitter accounts. I have one for teaching and one for, for well, actually, I technically have three, but that's a story for another day. Secret. Um, but the, uh, yeah, just some of the folks that I've been following on Twitter posting really um, kind of awesome things about um, just specifically uh, black teachers in America writing about like what it means to be black in America and education, but. Um, I follow um, Kelly Wickham Hurst, and she posts a lot about. She posts yeah. personal stuff too, but she posts a lot about um, what she's doing in education. I think just like going, going to find, uh, especially on Twitter. Um, I think Twitter. I I have this new appreciation for Twitter since we've had these interviews about disrupt texts. That it's just a platform that is so shitty sometimes, but so awesome sometimes that like just using it for good, right? And like finding those people to support who are doing great work. Um, yeah, highly recommend um, seeking out uh, specifically teachers of color on Twitter and listen, mm -hmm. reading about their experiences, listening to them, right, and listening to their experiences. Um, that's just, yeah, that's your, I, I, there are some phenomenal, phenomenal folks doing amazing work, so. All right, Real Pain, do you have, either of you have Real Pain to dish out or um, oh, your least favorite writer could also work for Real Pain? Um, least favorite writer. I, I mean, have, I feel like I already dished out something. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I don't have a least, right. least favorite writer right now, but I, because, you know, they come and go, but the, um, I don't have enough anger to, like, sustain that forever. Um, and I, you know, it's a new, it's something new every day. But I think that, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the just kind of revisionist history crap. We talked about this last week with Disrupt, Disrupt Text, but... Uh, with the other folks from Disrupt Text, but I, you know, just thinking about people trying to, um, you know, as a as a social studies teacher, like teaching white history, I just like I'm, it's just killing me lately. And it's been a, there's been a lot of that in the Twitterverse and in like, I mean, don't ever go to Reddit. It's like the worst part of the internet. But like, I mean, people just talking about, well, not the worst. Okay, that's like that's going a little far. But um, there's some, <laughs> there's some good things on Reddit. They have some subreddits about like cute puppies and stuff. But you know, I think that like the fact that 
people are st- are still beating that drum about white history. I just like stop, like stop. You need to stop. You need to stop. Like it's the there's all history is white history. So let's stop now. And other social studies teachers doing it. I'm just like you need to go back to college, like or stop teaching because you are doing students a disservice. So that's my real pain today. Amen. Preach. Preach on that. All right, final segment, Annie. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies! So my homework is just simply to check out some of the links that we're going to post in the show notes. Um, NCTE's committee that was referenced. Um, Go check out Lorena's website and support her work. Download the PDF. Share it with your colleagues, friends. I mean, maybe even use it and look at, like, whatever work situation you're in. I bet there's some things you could adapt um, to your current work environment, even if you work in the office or you're a graphic designer or whatever it is that you do. Mm-hmm. Annie, you had homework? I did, yeah. So I think one of the most important things that people still don't see for some reason, and by people I mean white people, and by white people I mean white <laughs> women who teach, um, is that is about what exactly what Lorena was saying about um, school segregation. So, you know, there's a great article from The Atlantic. Um, school, school segregation is not a myth. I don't know if that could be any more clear, like in the title, what um, <laughs> that it's not. It's not a myth. So um, please go check check out that article. If you're still on the fence about whether segregation is real, um, get off the fence because it is. And then um, that article can help you kind of figure it out. Um, and I think that should not, that's not the statistics about that are not controversial. They're plain as day. So if anyone's still having struggling with that concept, highly recommend. It's a, it's a good read. Uh, Lorena homework for the, for the listeners. Yeah. Um, I, I'll say it like this. Um, if you are a person of color who is listening, um, do you and find a way to stand up for yourself in the next coming weeks. Um, don't do the thing where you're like, I'm not going to say it now, or I'm not going to bring my idea forth. No, do it. Do the thing. We need you. We need your voice. Mm -hmm. And if you're a white person that's listening or anyone who's white presenting, or you, you know, are able to benefit from white privilege, then be an accomplice in the next coming weeks at work. Mm -hmm. Maybe that means that you echo something a person of color has said that you agree with Mm -hmm. who's being ignored, or maybe you need to offer an idea um, because you have privilege in that space or access to change makers and decision makers and and you could do something better for the people around you. Thank you so much for taking your time and energy and your Sunday morning away from your family to be with us um, on the show. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Bye. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. Three. Bye. Bye. There's a little harmony in that. Did you hear the the harmony? The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.